0: Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible offers a selection of thousands of audiobooks across every genre. As a new member, you can get a 30-day trial subscription free, and you can download and keep one free audiobook. And if you sign up using my special code, audibletrial.com slash UNK you will contribute $15 towards this podcast, so I can keep affording half-decent music for my episodes. Support your favorite podcast and a book of your choice, What's Not to Love? Since I'm talking about World War I today, there's no better time to recommend Barbara Tuckman's The Guns of August, the classic account of the opening moves of one of history's most terrible conflicts. It is a gripping literary experience, well-told and gut-wrenching and awe-inspiring, and it is free for a first-time listener. So once again, that is audibletrial.com slash UNK Soldiers Pod. On with the show. The year 1914. The place, Tanzania. The Great War descends on the colony of German East Africa, where a brilliant commander and his African soldiers face off against the might of the British Empire. This is the massive forgotten campaign that was World War I in Africa. I'm James Hauser and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I'm your host, James Hauser, and Happy New Year 2023! This is episode 41, The Kaiser's Lions. Guys, I am back from my short hiatus and move in and stuff, and hope to keep a firmer schedule throughout 2023, though I will of course let you all know if there are any changes. Thanks so much for sticking with me this long. We have some more one-shots coming up for a while before we get to the next series, And ooh, that one will be a doozy. That's, uh, that's the Paraguayan War. We're gonna, that's gonna be awesome. But I gotta take this moment before we get rolling and emphasize again, thank you so much for all the support and for all the patience you've shown me. Unknown Soldiers podcast is coming into 2023 strong with some really fantastic episodes that you should be excited for, starting with this one. So way back last year, I did an Unfiltered Soldiers episode on the other fronts of World War I, beyond the Western Front, and I'm pretty sure I mentioned that I want to cover lots of these fronts as I get the chance. Well, the day has come. Today's episode is about World War I in East Africa, in particular the campaigns of one Paul von Leto Vorbeck. This is World War I as you've never seen it before, including some really wacky stuff that might seem too bizarre to be true, but is. I do have to make a quick note. There is one key part of the East Africa campaign that I am splitting off into its own separate short round, and that is the saga of the SMS Königsberg on the Rufiji Delta. I will mention it in this episode for context, but next week I will release a short round describing the whole operation, as freaking bonkers as it was, in loving detail. So look out next week for the Kaiser's African Queen. Just sticking with the theme there. Until then... Guys, as always, this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. It's World War I. The violence is ultra-violent. Podcast is PG-13. Language is mostly clean. Content is not. There is one teensy-weensy F-bomb today, but it's in a quote, so it's okay. And I get one to two F-bombs max in a PG-13 rating. (laughs) all my sources and some maps we posted on my website unknownsoldierspodcast.com including a little bit of notes on which book is best to read about this campaign so if you want it that's where you can find it finally any errors mispronunciations or mistakes are my own everything i'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge this was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers when most people think of world war 1 they think of the western front and everything else as a small sideshow. We've been over that. Case in point, most history books will tell you that the first British shot of the First World War was fired on August 22, 1914, in a skirmish with the German army in Belgium by Corporal Ernest Thomas of the Fourth Dragoon Guards. But those books are wrong. The first British shot of World War I had been fired two weeks earlier On August 7th, 1914, it had been fired by al Haji Grunshi, a black soldier of the Gold Coast Regiment in German Togoland. So Britain's first shot of World War I was fired by an African soldier in Africa in a campaign no one has ever heard of. Gee, I wonder why they forgot it. Let's flip this around. World War I ended, according to the history books, on November 11th, 1918, but the last German force in the field only laid down its arms again two weeks later, on November 25th. This was the East Africa Schutztruppe, led by Major General Paul von Lethe Vorbeck, and the vast majority of his soldiers were black. Most of the soldiers he surrendered to were black. Most people see World War I as fought in Europe by Europeans and Americans who were also white. But over 2 million Africans served in World War I, either as soldiers or as laborers, and over 10% of them died. World War I wasn't just fought in Africa, it was fought largely by Africans. It was their war too. When we think of the Great War veteran going home after the trauma and horror of the trenches, we think of the British, the French, the German, the American soldier, but rarely the Congolese, the Kenyan, the Nigerian, the Tanzanian. But they had their own Great War. Today's episode is not a comprehensive summary of World War I in Africa. It was just too large. This could easily be a series. I will focus on the East Africa campaign of World War I, so our main stomping ground will be Tanzania, Kenya, Rwanda, Burundi, that area. But even this is honestly an enormous campaign. I can only give you so much detail in two hours, so I will hit the high points. And our tour guide will be one of World War I's most incredible commanders, Paul von Leto Vorbeck, the last German commander of World War I to surrender. Leto Vorbeck is a complicated man. This will not be a hero worship episode. He was undoubtedly a brilliant commander, a model of excellent military leadership, very admirable in many ways. But military genius is destructive. War, after all, is a hungry beast. It devours. And brilliant commanders, by just the function of being brilliant generals, they make sure the beast stays fed. When we talk about the light of military genius, we have to remind ourselves that that light is a fire consuming everything around it. Europe turned their colonies in Africa into an arena of the Great War, and the Africans paid the price. Today, we'll be talking about the East Africa campaign of World War I, especially those of German East Africa's commander, Paul von Vorbeck. We'll start off with the obligatory background and geography lesson, major characters, major forces, and then we will follow some of the most incredible soldiers in military history to the slopes of Kilimanjaro, the shores of Lake Victoria, and the plains of the Serengeti. We will see how this theater was far from just a footnote in the history of the Great War. And at the end, I will tell you why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this is a literal safari, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, shovel your driveway, listen to your spouse talk about their family drama, do the thing you need to do. So pick up your machine gun tripod and your mosquito net, take your daily quinine and watch out for lions. I'm not kidding about the lions. Let's go on campaign. On January 17, 1914, a middle-aged Prussian officer stepped onto the docks of Dar es Salaam, the main port of German East Africa. He was tall, straight-backed, gray-haired, with a tidy military mustache. His wary blue eyes sparkled with intelligence and good humor, but also a streak of dark ruthlessness. The 44-year-old Lieutenant Colonel Paul Emil von Leto Vorbeck had come to assume command in German East Africa. World War I was eight months away. Now, you're like, James, what are the Germans doing in East Africa? Same thing the rest of Europe is doing, being a bunch of imperialist dirtbags. There had been this thing back in the late 19th century called the Scramble for Africa, where European countries climbed over each other to grab every little bit of real estate they could get their greedy hands on. They did this for a whole bunch of reasons, including profit, glory, prestige, naval bases, machismo, and a whole freaking lot of racism. Germany's main motivation was prestige, also racism. By the late 19th century, having overseas colonies was cool. Every self-respecting white country had to have some overseas colonies or you were a nobody. Kaiser Wilhelm II, like many of his subjects, was an avid imperialist who saw overseas expansion as Germany's future, its destiny, its place in the sun. This was a policy that was often called Weltpolitik, or world power, world politics. Germany's not just a European power, they want to be a world power. But Germany was late to the scramble for Africa, they were late to the party, so they got the leftovers. In 1914, Germany had one, two, three, four colonies in Africa. They were <clears throat> German Togoland in West Africa, Cameroon in Central Africa, German Southwest Africa, now Namibia, and most importantly for our purposes, German East Africa. German East Africa encompassed the modern countries of Burundi, Rwanda, and most of all, Tanzania. It was the brainchild of Dr. Karl Peters, a German adventurer and colonizer and douchebag. In the 1880s, he rolled up, got a bunch of local African leaders drunk, and had them sign documents agreeing to German rule. Which is also pretty much how the United States stole a bunch of uh, American Indian land. By 1884, the Kaiser's new East African playground was significantly larger than Germany itself. German East Africa covered significantly more land than Germany in Europe did. And this was capital A Africa. All the classic African wildlife, lions, giraffes, hippos, rhinos, they're all here. German East Africa contained Mount Kilimanjaro, Africa's tallest mountain, which the Kaiser specifically requested be inside his new territory. Me want big rock, big rock is mine, was the logic he never personally saw Kilimanjaro. The African Great Lakes, including Lake Victoria and Lake Tanganyika, ringed the western and northern fringes of the colony. It covered savannas and jungles and swamps and deserts, a freaking smorgasbord of terrain. I'm serious, guys. This is the Africa of movies and documentaries and dreams, and uh, most importantly, of course, Taylor Swift's Wildest Dreams music video. Teddy Roosevelt went on safari here. But people lived here around 7.5 million Africans, and because diversity is natural, they were all split up into their own ethnic groupings, about 30% of whom were Muslim, and then they were artificially unified into this territory called German East Africa, the product of lines drawn on a map in Berlin, with no, not even a single worry about the situation on the ground. For instance, the Maasai people northwest of Kilimanjaro were divided in half by the new border between German East Africa and British East Africa. And in the early days of the colony, these people were treated like human garbage. The early stages of German colonialism were shockingly brutal. In German Southwest Africa, modern Namibia, the Herero and Namaka peoples had the nerve to resist Germany's dream of a new white-majority settler state. The Herero Wars from 1904 to 1908 ended with General Lothar von Trotha's an infamous extermination of the Herero, now recognized as the first genocide of the 20th century. Similar atrocities took place in German East Africa. Karl Peters used the locals as slave labor and whipped them to death before he was finally removed from power. Peters ended up being one of the personal heroes of, check notes, Adolf Hitler, for the dominance he exercised over the lesser races. The cruelty of Paters and other German governors provoked the Maji Maji Rebellion of 1905, which was also crushed with astonishing cruelty. But after that, the Germans cooled off. Genocidal rampages were bad press. King Leopold II of Belgium and his disgusting actions in the Congo had shocked even other imperialists, like Teddy Roosevelt, Queen Victoria, like, jeez, dude. And, and no one wanted to be the new Belgium. So Germany moved towards a kinder, gentler imperialism, if such a thing exists. By 1914, many regarded German East Africa as a model of progressive, enlightened governance. It saw major development and quote-unquote progress, including schooling systems, new cities being built, and two major railroads, the Northern Railway going from the port of Tanga to the Kilimanjaro foothills, and the Central Railway from Dar es Salaam, all the way into the interior into Lake Tanganyika. Railroads in Africa, like America, served as a symbol of progress and westernization. But when it came to defense, German East Africa's only standing army was a very small military contingent called the Schutztruppe, which translates as protection force. And the vast majority of the Schutztruppe were local African soldiers. They were called the Askaris. Askari, which means soldier in Swahili, was a general term applied to African soldiers in European service. Pretty much every colonial power in Africa had Askaris, but racial prejudice and the fear of armed Africans restricted most Askaris to, like, rear area jobs, local policing, second line detachments. So many Europeans believed that using black soldiers to fight white soldiers in a hypothetical war was not only immoral, but downright vulgar, an insult to white manhood. There was a widely held belief that allowing black soldiers to kill white soldiers undermined the whole rationale for imperialism. There were 2,000 Askaris in Germany, East Africa in 1914, commanded by 200 white German officers and NCOs, usually hand-picked from the German army for their competence and experience. Most of the German East Africa Askaris came from the Manyema and Nyamwezi peoples near Lake Tanganyika, widely regarded as very warlike. This is a theory that most European countries had called the martial racist theory, that certain ethnic groupings were inherently good at war, so they tended to recruit from those groupings. It's why the British relied so much on Rajputs and Gurkhas and Sikhs for their Indian army. The German East Africa Ascaris were very well paid compared to other nations' Ascaris and equipped with fairly modern weaponry. One exception was their rifles. Most of the German Ascaris carried the old black powder M1871 Mauser rather than the bolt-action M1898. Their real firepower lay in their relatively large number of Maxim machine guns. So you may be asking, James, why would Africans want to fight for Germany? What was in it for them? Why would you become an Ascari? Well, lots of reasons. Many of these peoples, these ethnic groups, had a warrior tradition, and they weren't allowed to go kill each other anymore because Germany has arrived, so they signed up for the Schutztruppe. It fulfilled a cultural impulse to go to war. You were paid well. You got food and clothing and housing, stuff you might not have in, you know, your village back home. There was also adventure. You got to ride trains and shoot guns and go to new places and do all sorts of crazy stuff. So, long and short of it, guys, the Ascari enlisted for the same reasons most soldiers enlist, even in the 21st century United States. And the German Ascaris, guys, these are some of the most incredible soldiers I've talked about in this podcast, as we will see. Astonishingly brave, creative, disciplined, intelligent, motivated, man for man, some of the best soldiers of the 20th century. Their story is incredible, but it is also the story of their leader. Lieutenant Colonel Paul Emil von Leto Vorbeck was, on the surface, a very typical German officer. Born in 1870, the scion of an old Prussian military family, he had had a moderately successful career. Unusually for a German officer, he had enormous experience outside Germany. He had fought in China during the Boxer Rebellion, where he may or may not have rubbed shoulders with, like, Adna Chaffee and Littleton Waller from the Philippine War, and he had fought in the Herrera War in Namibia. His overseas colonial experience was relatively rare in the German army, which gave him a solid resume for leading the East Africa Schutztruppe. Like most German officers of his day, von Leto was an aggressive tactician and a strict disciplinarian, the Prussian soldier par excellence. But his genius lay in what made him different. See, von Leto had served in the Herero Wars in Namibia, and while other Germans were dismissive and insulting towards their African enemies, He admired them. He realized that to fight in Africa, you had to understand Africans. He studied their tactics, their techniques, how they used the terrain and weather to their advantage. Unlike many Germans, he developed a deep understanding of the Iron Hand of Logistics, which was especially important in the vast distances and wretched conditions of Africa. What made von Leto a great commander wasn't just his leadership skills or military ability, though he had plenty of those. It was that he defied European racial prejudice and saw his soldiers as people. Let me be very clear about this. Von Leto is not a, you know, I'm not whitewashing this guy. He was a racist. He was an imperialist. He was a right winger, as were most Europeans of the time. But he was able to burst through that prejudice to at least some degree and treated his Askaris with dignity and respect. He treated them like Men. A low bar, but one that most Europeans didn't meet. And for this respect, for this treatment, for, their, for the fact that he recognized them as soldiers and as men, the Askaris would follow Paul von Leto Vorbeck literally to hell and back. But von Leto did share one major trait of German military culture, a belief in total war. Total war is war at its most extreme, where the whole economy and population are mobilized for the conflict, where military priorities override civilian priorities, where no weapons or tactics or strategies are off-limits. This was how all the nations of Europe would fight World War I and World War II. And in a country like Germany, East Africa, which still relied on subsistence agriculture and a very limited infrastructure, the consequences of total war could be catastrophic in more ways than one. See, every European power was terrified of the impact a major war in Europe would have on their colonial possessions. One British general described it like this. There was an idea. Should war break out between England and Germany, there should be no actual fighting in Africa. It was thought that it would be most dangerous to employ black troops to fight against white men. It was feared that the prestige of the white man would be lowered, and that the progress of civilization in Africa would be put back a hundred years. Basically, what will the black people think if we let them fight in a white man's war? We can't have that. They might start thinking they're people. Any war in the colonies ran the risk of a native revolt. The Africans could rise up at any time to kill all the white people in their beds, so the Europeans believed, and to be fair, the Europeans had given them plenty of reasons to do this. The Europeans feared each other much less than they feared their own abused, mistreated subject peoples. So when the scramble for Africa was going on, most of the European powers signed treaties that would, in theory, keep Africa neutral in the event of war in Europe. As it turned out, those treaties would last about five seconds when war actually started, but before World War I, some people still believed they would hold. The Germans especially wanted to believe this. Because German East Africa was uniquely vulnerable, it was surrounded by potential enemies. To the north, across the Kilimanjaro frontier, lay modern Kenya, which was British East Africa. To the west, across Lake Tanganyika, was the Belgian Congo. To the southwest lay British Rhodesia, northern Rhodesia, modern Zambia. And to the east was the Indian Ocean, dominated by the Royal Navy. So that's the British already have you surrounded, Into the direct south, German East Africa bordered Portuguese East Africa, modern Mozambique. So if war broke out, especially with Great Britain, German East Africa would be virtually isolated from the outside world. They were thousands of miles from the fatherland. The overwhelming power of the Royal Navy would blockade the coast and cut the telegraph wires. No reinforcements or supplies could reach them. They would have to survive without any outside help. All these factors weighed heavily on the civilian governor of German East Africa, Heinrich Schnee. Schnee wasn't just desperate to preserve all the colony had accomplished in the last decade. He was terrified of a native uprising. There were about 10,000 German settlers in German East Africa, and the locals outnumbered them by like a 1,000 to 1. So Schnee's policy in the event of war was that German East Africa would declare neutrality, declare the ports of Tanga and Dar es Salaam as open ports so they wouldn't pick in any military traffic, and focus on internal security instead of an external war. This policy provoked a long-running conflict between Schnee and his new subordinate, Lieutenant Colonel Paul von Leto Vorbeck. As soon as von Leto took charge of the Schutztruppe in 1914, he got busy. He conducted recon of the colony, surveyed possible defensive positions, reorganized and retrained the Schutztruppe. Von Leto was preparing for the war he suspected was coming. July 1914 was supposed to be a time of celebration in German East Africa. Preparations were underway for a big ceremony marking the completion of the Central Railway. Pavilions were being raised for this big celebration in Dar es Salaam. One of the Kaiser's warships had come to the city as part of the celebration as a display of the Kaiser's military might. This was the SMS Königsberg, a light cruiser, small by European standards but still impressive and gleaming in the far reaches of Africa. But the lights were going out in Europe, even as the celebration preparations began. On August 5, 1914, Schnee received the telegram that would send East Africa into darkness. Germany was at war with Britain, Belgium, France, and Russia. The First World War had begun. Batten down the hatches, boys. It's on. Governor Schnee knew exactly what he wanted to do. German East Africa would be neutral. Its ports of Dar es Salaam and Tanga would remain open, turning away the military vessels of any nation, including Germany, in return for non-combatant status. This would hopefully save them from British attack. Schnee moved the German capital inland to Tabora and ordered von Leto to evacuate the port cities. But Paul von Leto Vorbeck was determined to bring German East Africa into the war. He saw Schnee's actions as surrender, tantamount to treason. He was already raising new units from local German settlers, recruiting new Askaris from the martial races. He was ready to go on the attack and this was where von Leto would run into conflict with Schnee. Schnee's priority was to prevent rebellion within German East Africa, so he wanted the Schutz Truppe dispersed to keep the natives in check and defend the colony. Von Leto was concerned about the war. He wanted to concentrate the Schutz Truppe to fight an aggressive war against Great Britain. In August 1914, the fussy civilian faced down the rigid soldier and ordered him to cease any offensive operations and evacuate the port cities. In peacetime, Schnee was von Leto's superior, but in wartime their position was much more ambiguous. Von Leto complied with some of Schnee's orders, but undermined his superior by giving his German officers latitude to act on their own initiative. They prepared for combat operations and immediately started launching raids across the border. Now guys, von Leto's memoirs, one of the main sources for this campaign, basically turned Schnee into an obstructionist bureaucrat. Here's a good rule for historical research in general. Memoirs always lie. Schnee was trying to preserve German East Africa from war because he thought the war would be over quickly and provoking the British into attacking them would be devastating for the colony. Von Leto portrayed this as cowardice, but I don't think so. These men just had very different ideas about what the colony was for. Schnee saw German East Africa as an accomplishment, a fragile creation, something worth preserving. Von Leto saw the colony as a tool for Germany's war against the world. See, what happened in East Africa was never going to decide the outcome of World War I. It was isolated, distant, far from the main theater of war. But Paul von Leto Vorbeck realized that if he could organize his forces and take the offensive, raise a ruckus, cause problems, he might be able to influence the war back in Europe. Every allied soldier sent against him was one less soldier in the trenches of France, where the war was going to be decided. So Leto Vorbeck was going to make himself as annoying as humanly possible. This was a strategy that really epitomized von Leto's military genius. He didn't have to win. Every soldier fighting against him was, in itself, a victory. Von Leto spelled this out later in the war. He said, So long as we continue to resist, so long the enemy must pour resources into Africa and thus weaken his reinforcements in Europe. We were a knife in his side, and the more we turned it, the more he bled. But in the process, Africa would bleed too. Von Lettow's strategy was brilliant, but it was also ruthless. It basically turned the 7.5 million people of German East Africa into an expedient, a means to an end, a palm to be sacrificed in the service of Germany. This was the epitome of Europe's exploitation of a continent. Africa was reduced to a mere battlefield in the contest of empires. The horrors of this strategy were apparent to Heinrich Schnee, one of the main reasons he opposed von Leto's strategy, but Schnee's efforts would prove futile. Because just before his proclamation declared Dar es Salaam as an open port, the SMS Königsberg had slipped out of the harbor and gone on a rampage in the Indian Ocean. Now again, I will cover the saga of the SMS Königsberg in a subsequent short round, it's crazy, stay tuned for that. But on August 6, the Königsberg captured a British merchant vessel, and since she had sailed from Dar es Salaam, in British eyes this made the port no longer neutral. On the night of August 8th, British warships shelled Dar es Salaam in retaliation. This decided the issue. German East Africa would not remain neutral. World War I in East Africa would look radically different than the Western Front. For one thing, this was a backburner front, low priority to almost every major power, so Africa was always last on the list for good equipment or first-rate troops. The forces involved were relatively small, this would be a company or battalion war, rather than a division or army war. The distances were vast, enormous, unfathomable on the Western Front. Germany's Africa was just about as big as France and Germany combined. Conditions were ridiculous, with abominable weather, Rampant disease and crazy terrain ranging from jungles to swamps to, I don't know, literally the tallest mountain in Africa. There were almost no improved roads, and you can count the number of railroads on one hand. What did all this mean? Logistics. Logistics would be a nightmare out here. World War I is noteworthy in military history for being the first conflict where deaths in battle significantly outnumber deaths from disease. But in the East African theater, the older patterns prevailed. Out here, cholera, malaria, typhus, and dysentery would kill far more men than bullets. On the Western Front, thousands of men would battle to advance a few miles. In East Africa, a few hundred men would struggle to advance hundreds of miles. For all sides in this conflict, Africa itself would be the real obstacle. But of course, the war was mostly fought by Africans anyway, as we will see. August 1914 and the outbreak of World War I caught von Leto's Schutztruppe scattered in individual field companies all along the border. His command was so spread out that it could only launch small pinprick raids to start off with. Von Leto did have some assistance from General Kurt Walla, an old retired general who voluntarily placed himself under a colonel's command and assumed command of the troops on the western border. Throughout August and September 1914, the Germans launched aggressive probes into Kenya, northern Rhodesia, and even the Belgian Congo. So the Great War in East Africa began, with both British and German troops sparring across the Serengeti and along the foothills of Kilimanjaro. Von Letov's German Askaris and the black British soldiers of the King's African Rifles fought in numerous skirmishes of company and battalion strength, sharp, tense little battles that were no less lethal for their size. Dozens of khaki-clad troops traded shots and machine gun bursts across the outposts, along the artificial borders that European diplomats had drawn. And the King's African Rifles, the K.A.R., gave as good as they got. Not all these battles went the Askaris' way. But von Letov's strategy was working. He was causing a ruckus, and the British were reacting. By October 1914, thousands of British troops were on their way to East Africa to face off against Paul von Letov Vorbeck and his Askaris, the Kaiser's lions. Africa, like Europe, was about to be consumed by the First World War. The Great War in Africa began literally hours after it began in Europe. The British declared war on Germany on August 4, 1914. On August 5th, the British invaded German Togoland in West Africa, where on August 7th, Al-Hadji Grunshi of the Gold Coast Regiment fired Britain's first shot of the war. Even as the armies were in motion across Belgium and Poland, the Allies threw together makeshift invasions of every German colony in Africa. So much for that neutrality clause, right? And the Allies overwhelm most of these German colonies relatively painlessly. Guys, this is where I don't have room to go into detail, all these other parts of the Great War in Africa besides East Africa. I'll just run the scoreboard. The British occupied German Togoland in August 1914. South Africa, part of the British Empire, conquered German Southwest Africa by mid-1915. German Cameroon held out until 1916, when the Cameroon Schutztruppe surrendered to British and French forces. All of these were extensive, costly campaigns, but they were also open and shut cases. German East Africa would be the one that got away. The initial forces that Britain deployed against German East Africa would come from British India. When World War I began, the British Indian Army organized multiple task forces to sail out to the various warfronts. The 4,000 men of Expeditionary Force C headed straight to British East Africa, modern Kenya, to strike the German positions around Kilimanjaro. The 9,000 men of Expeditionary Force B were tasked with an amphibious assault against German East Africa. The plan was to capture the port city of Tanga, the northern railway's eastern terminus, then follow up with the quick conquest of the colony. The East Africa operation was extremely low on the British priority list. The troops allocated for Expeditionary Force B were well not the first string, not even the first string for the British Indian Army. The first string was Expeditionary Force A, which went to the western front and had a bad time. Some units in Expeditionary Force B, like the British 2nd Loyal North Lancashires and the 101st Bombay Grenadiers, were good units. Others, like the 63rd Palomkottas, were the freaking bad news bears. One British officer described Force B. They constitute the worst in India. I tremble to think what may happen if we meet serious opposition. Their commander wasn't much better. I do not need to describe General Arthur Aitken in any great detail, we've seen the likes of him before. Another clueless British general who underestimates his enemy and doesn't do any recon. At this point, you can just call this podcast Unknown Mediocre British Generals. Aitken downplayed the fighting ability of the Askaris. He didn't believe they put up a fight. Aitken said, The Indian Army will make short work of a lot of Negroes. He didn't say Negroes. He said another word I'm not going to say. So Aitken didn't plan anything except a breezy waltz into German East Africa. If you're a long-time podcast listener or you've studied military history, you already know where this is going. Thanks to really bad British operational security, Paul von Leto Vorbeck knew a British attack was coming. He just didn't know where exactly. He only had a few thousand Schutztruppe to hold all of German East Africa, again, an area much larger than Germany itself. But Leto Vorbeck had observed the British army during the fighting in the Boxer Rebellion, and he had not been impressed. Their soldiers were brave, but their commanders were clumsy and unimaginative. By spreading his forces out, Von Leto ensured that wherever the British landed, at least a few soldiers could hold them off until reinforcements arrived. It was a calculated risk, and the calculations were correct. On November 2nd, 1914, the transports carrying Expeditionary Force B arrived outside the seaport of Tanga. 9,000 troops... Over twice the number of Askaris in the whole of German East Africa. And here's the thing, guys when the British arrived, the Germans only had a single infantry platoon in Tanga. It was virtually defenseless. But the British decided to spend time going through diplomatic protocol. They met with the German governor and demanded Tanga's surrender. He was like, yeah guys, we're totally going to surrender, so hang on, let me go talk to my bosses so I can confirm, oh by the way, the harbor is full of mines, don't bring any ships in or they might get blown up. Um, okay, so there wasn't a single mine in the waters around Tanga, and as soon as he was back on shore, the governor threw on his Schutztruppe uniform and sent a message to Von Leto via telegraph, like, hey boss, the British are here, send help. So while the British waited for an answer to their surrender requests that would never come, and cleared for mines that weren't there, Von Letto sent every nearby unit to Tanga by rail as fast as he could send them. On the evening of November 2nd, two battalions of Indian troops splashed ashore in German East Africa. They weren't in great shape, they had been crammed into a bunch of stinking cargo ships for weeks, and Aitken hadn't even let them stretch their legs along the way. The first land they touched in a couple of months was enemy territory. The Indians began their movements toward Tanga on the morning of November 3rd, but as they marched between the tall trees of a local rubber plantation, they ran right into a rattle of rifle and machine gun fire. A single company of Askaris, the 17th Feld Company, was holding off the British advance. They were running out of ammunition when a train came roaring in from the Kilimanjaro front at 7.30 a.m., It carried two more companies of Askaris, and their screaming counterattack sent the British Indian troops into a panic. Only the landing of fresh forces prevented a few hundred Askaris from driving three times their number of British forces into the sea. And despite his overwhelming numbers, General Aitken waited until the morning of November 4th before even thinking about attacking again. He lost a golden opportunity because only a thin screen of German Askaris stood between the British and Tanga. Every hour the British delayed, more reinforcements arrived. And before dawn on November 4th, Colonel Paul von Lettow Vorbeck arrived on the scene. He immediately mounted a bicycle and conducted a personal reconnaissance of the fighting lines, chain smoking and chatting with his Askaris, ducking beneath rifle shots. Keep in mind, Aiken was still on the ship for most of this. Aiken didn't even look at the battlefield. Von Leto was out there taking fire. But even with reinforcements, the Germans were heavily outnumbered. By dawn on November 4th, von Letov would only have 1,000 men, 90% of them Askaris, to face off against 9,000 British troops, like 90% Indians. And the British had naval gunfire support. But von Letov was confident of victory nonetheless. I knew the clumsiness with which English troops were moved and led in battle, and it was certain that in the very close and completely unknown country in which the enemy would find himself, these difficulties would grow to infinity. The British advance late on November 4th. The askaris laid down crackling rifle fire from their antiquated Mausers, and Maxim machine guns chewed up the earth ahead of them. But the sheer number of Indian troops began to tell. The loyal North Lancs and the Kashmir Rifles pushed the German left into the streets of Tanga, starting a chaotic street battle. Only a counterattack by a unit of German settler militia held the line. The coastal winds of the Indian Ocean sprayed sand across the bushes and rubber trees as Indian fought African at the behest of their colonial overlords. The Battle of Tanga hung in the balance. Then the British met disaster in the tall trees of the rubber plantation. The 63rd Palomkottas were caught under sheets of machine gun fire from the Ascaris, but then a new enemy entered the fray. The bursts of Maxim guns had rattled a number of beehives, and hordes of angry insects descended on the hapless Indian soldiers. And guys, these are African honeybees, much nastier than their American counterparts. Some soldiers were driven nearly insane by the stings, like guys didn't notice they had been shot, because they were dealing with hundreds of bee stings covering their faces. Under attack from both man and insect, the Palamcottas broke and ran for the beach. This incident has led to the Battle of Tanga, also being called the Battle of the Bees. So yeah, World War I in Africa meets Nicolas Cage internet meme. Guys, this, this campaign gets weird. The retreat of the British left flank gave Von Letov the chance he was looking for. He sent his final reserves in a right hook that brought the whole British line under a withering machine gun fire like he flanked them from the side. Von Letov described what happened next. The whole front jumped up and dashed forward with enthusiastic cheers. In vile disorder, the enemy fled in dense masses. Several Askaris came in beaming with delight, with several captured English rifles on their backs and an Indian prisoner in each hand. At least someone's having a good time today. Von Letov's triumph was nearly undone by a misheard command, which caused most of his units to retreat even as the British were retreating. If the British had their heads on right, they could have seized the opportunity and turned the tide. But their troops were demoralized, and Arthur Aiken had the imagination of an ironing board. The British reembarked on their transports, and by November 5th, they were sailing away. The British invasion of German East Africa was at an end. Tanga was a monumental victory for von Letov and his Askaris. Outnumbered 9 to 1, they hadn't just beaten their opponents, they had almost destroyed them. Von Letov's losses added up to 145, but the British had lost 817, almost as many troops as von Letov had on the field. Given the force ratio, Tanga was one of the most humiliating defeats in British history. The British later accused Von Lethov of, like, weaponizing the bees, like he had trained bees to sting only British soldiers or something, which is pretty stupid. Like, come on, guys, take the L. Take your L and go. The icing on the cake was that Aiken had left behind a virtual supply depot worth of equipment on the beach, including 16 machine guns, hundreds of rifles, and tons of ammo, clothing, and commo equipment. Considering that von Letov had no supply line back to Germany itself, this was a godsend. The Askaris would be using some of this stolen equipment up until the end of the war. And this would be a trend. As their original stockpiles dried up, the Schutztruppe's supply situation came to depend almost entirely on what they could capture from the enemy. The Allies themselves would be Paul von Letov Vorbeck's main suppliers. The German victory came down to von Lettov's tactical brilliance, the quality of this the Askaris, and some very serious British mistakes. The British high command blamed Aitken, which I mean fair, and fired him, <laughs> and they decided not to mount another attack on German East Africa. With the war in Europe going on, there was no way they were diverting thousands of troops and tons of supplies to the butt end of nowhere. No, German East Africa, von Lettov and his little army were very low on the British to-do list. One major reason is that the British were facing a series of local revolts. Matter of fact, every colonial power had at least one major native uprising during the conflict, because all the Africans looked at each other were like, this is our chance, boys. In early 1915, the British had to put down a major rebellion in Nyasaland modern Malawi, led by a Christian convert named John Shalembewe. Chalambwe had been educated at a Baptist seminary in Lynchburg, Virginia of all places, and apparently he came back to Africa really hating white people. Which, I mean fair, if I was black in the American Jim Crow South during the 1890s, I would probably hate white people too. Chalambwe was killed and his rebellion defeated, but he is one of Malawi's national heroes today, and his face still adorns much of their currency. Britain's only major concern in East Africa was the SMS Königsberg. With Admiral von Spee's squadron destroyed off the Falkland Islands in December 1914, see episode 26, it was the only German warship still unaccounted for outside Europe. The Königsberg was currently holding out in the Rufiji Delta, literally up a jungle river, trapped by British warships at the river mouth. The British Navy would spend most of 1915 trying to get to and sink the Königsberg. It was one of Winston Churchill's pet projects. But other than that, the British government decided to leave von Letov and his little army to their own devices. The problem was that von Letov wasn't going to just sit back and wait for the British to come to him. For his strategy to work, he needed to cause problems, hit back at his enemy whenever he could, force them to send more resources to Africa and he got his chance very soon after the Battle of Tanga. The new commander in British East Africa was Mickey Tai, a hard-fighting, hard-drinking general who hated playing defense, so he decided to go poking the lion. He sent a small task force to seize the town of Yasin just over the border into German East Africa. The operation was notable for involving not just Indian troops this time, but also two companies of the King's African Rifles. The British, who had said a few years ago that black troops should not be used in a white man's war, were already using Kenyan troops in an offensive capacity. Von Letov struck back ferociously on January 18th, 1815. He sent several columns of Schutztruppe in a reckless attack on the new British outpost at Yasin. It was a rare mistake on his part. He just launched his frontal attack without doing enough recon The Gurkha and Kenyan defenders put up one heck of a freaking fight before being overrun. Von Letov's casualties were 300, appalling for his small force, and the cost was especially high in German officers and NCOs, the guys he had no means to replace anytime soon. One of Von Letov's personal friends, Captain Von Hammerstein, was killed right next to him, and he himself was almost killed more than once. So von Letov realized that more victories like Tenga and Yasin, more Pyrrhic victories that cost him so many of his experienced German officers and NCOs, would mean the end of the Schutztruppe. He had to change his strategy. We had to economize our force in order to last a long war. The need to strike great blows only quite exceptionally, and to restrict myself principally to guerrilla warfare was evidently imperative. Von Letov began to raise new units. The victories at Tenga and Yasin had brought out thousands of eager Askari recruits, and every able-bodied German man in East Africa eventually wound up carrying a gun. By the end of 1915, Von Letov fielded 12,000 Askaris and 3,000 European troops, a five-fold increase from his numbers at the start of the war. His ability to raise units was limited by a shortage of weapons and a shortage of trained German officers and NCOs. The Schutztruppe's supply problems especially would be dire. Throughout the entirety of the First World War, only two supply ships ever ran the British blockade and made it to Germany, East Africa. Fact of the matter was, von Lethoff could depend on Germany for almost nothing he needed. But despite his differences with von Letov, Governor Heinrich Schnee was organizing the colony for total war. After all, German East Africa was a bountiful land, full of resources, and the German colonists and African inhabitants alike got to work making what the Kaiser couldn't deliver. Native women operated looms to make fabric for uniforms, buffalo hides tanned with mangrove oil became boots, hippo lard became soap, pineapple fiber became rope, They even made gasoline from coconut oil and, of course, distilled lots and lots of moonshine. But the most important discovery came from a biological research center at Amani. One of the greatest threats to any army in Africa was disease, especially malaria. The cure for malaria is quinine, a chemical compound made from the Chincona tree, which was a finite resource in East Africa. But at Amani, German chemists managed to replicate a quinine substitute, that the troops called von Lettov schnapps. This stuff was apparently foul, like drinking the water at the bottom of a Denny's dumpster, but it worked. Throughout the Great War in Africa, German troops would suffer much lower rates of sickness than British troops. Now von Letov turned his attention to British East Africa. If his strategy of distracting the British was going to work and he couldn't risk major battles, he needed to get their attention and he could do that by hitting the Uganda Railway. The 700-mile Uganda Railway linked the Indian Ocean port of Mombasa with the interior of Kenya and Uganda. It had taken years and enormous effort to finish. The main obstacle had been a pair of infamous and unusually large lions, the Tsavo man-eaters, that may have killed over 100 rail workers in 1898. It's a pretty decent, uh, like, 90s movie about a fictionalization of the guys hunting these lions. I think it's called Ghosts in the Darkness. I like that movie. So those lions have been bad enough, but now the Kaiser's lions would be stalking the rails. Von Letov spent 1915 launching raid after raid on British East Africa's jugular vein. Eight-man teams of mixed Germans and Askaris had to cross miles of desert, sweating and parched from the lack of water, taunted by the visible ice cap of Kilimanjaro behind them. They would ambush locomotives with machine guns, or set dynamite booby traps under the rails. Bridges were blown, pressure plates set, and British outposts assaulted and looted. Lots of the dynamite had been, surprise, captured from the British supply dump at Tanga. The British reacted by spreading their forces out along the line, trying to intercept Von Letov's attacks. This was a war of back-and-forth raids with squads and platoons of Askaris finding themselves in desert firefights with the King's African Rifles or Punjabi troops as Kilimanjaro loomed over all in the distance. The British tried to counter von Litov's booby traps by having locomotives push weighted wagons in front of them, only for the Germans to start putting time delays on their detonators. Between March and May 1915 alone, the Germans took out 32 locomotives and blew up nine bridges. Von Letov's attacks reduced the Uganda Railway to shambles. These raids were perilous, and not just because of the British. Africa itself was the real obstacle. The water holes were few and far between, and wild animals were a constant menace. Ascaris would have to stand guard overnight to watch for lions, and at least one British patrol was scattered by an angry rhinoceros. Sometimes the wounded had to be left behind because they couldn't be carried. Von Letov himself went on at least one raid, under the principle that he couldn't ask his men to do something that he wouldn't do. It was almost a disaster when the raid lost its water supply. They survived by the skin of their teeth. Von Letov almost died again. But the colonel had stayed by his men, black and white, both of whom grew in their admiration. To the Askaris, von Letov was the Buona Obersti. Oberst being the German word for colonel, and Buona a term for big boss. So, the big boss colonel. The British remained passive throughout 1915, for the most part. They just didn't have the troops on hand to launch a major attack. They only carried out a few small actions, the most significant of which... Was the raid on Bukoba. While von Letov was beating the Uganda Railway like it owed him money, he had other forces scattered across German East Africa guarding key strongpoints. Most of his forces on the western frontier, near Uganda, the Belgian Congo, and Rhodesia, fell under old General Vala, who was launching his own distracting raids near Lake Tanganyika. His command included the radio station at Bukoba on the shores of Lake Victoria one of von Letov's last radio links with Germany. This is very, tradi- this is very uh, primitive radio technology still, only a couple of radio stations in German East Africa were able to talk to Germany at all. So the British decided to mount a little raid to destroy this radio station, and, you know, just to show the local Africans that they weren't a bunch of pushovers. The unit spearheading the raid was one of the most bizarre units of the First World War. The 25th Royal Fusiliers, aka the Legion of Frontiersmen, was basically a spare parts drawer of Victorian-era weirdos. They included, ahem, an American millionaire, an opera singer, some cowboys, some Russians who escaped from the gulag, a former general of the Honduran army who was serving as a sergeant, stockbrokers, a lighthouse keeper, a circus clown, and a lion tamer who was scared of lions. Their most famous member was the 64-year-old Frederick Sellis, one of the war's oldest soldiers, a legendary big-game hunter who was basically the archetype of the great white hunter. Like, he was the inspiration for the literary hero Alan Quatermain. He was a personal friend of Theodore Roosevelt and constant guest at the White House. And then they all grabbed their rifles and went to Africa. What even is this campaign? The raid on Bukoba went fine, at first, The British captured the town after a brief fight and destroyed the radio tower. Then the 25th Fusiliers and their African and Indian comrades got plastered on the moonshine and rampaged through the town, looting and burning and stealing and assaulting native women. In the process of their drunken frat party antics, one of the British soldiers found some private photographs of the local German commander and a woman I guess was his wife. In one of the photographs, he was in dress uniform and she was completely naked. In another photograph, she was in a ball gown, and he was completely naked. You know what? Sounds like they had a pretty pretty rockin' marriage for 1915. I bet they were really happy. Who am I to judge? Yeah, like I said, this campaign gets weird. You don't even want to hear some of the stuff I had to cut for time. The British did manage one major accomplishment in 1915. They finally sank the Königsberg. Again, that story will be in the short round. The Kaiser's last warship outside Europe rested on the bottom of the Rufiji River. The sailors of the Königsberg joined von Leto's Schutztruppe and learned to fight his infantry. And with that incredible knack for improvisation that the Germans kept displaying in this campaign, the von Leto's men removed the Königsberg's naval guns and mounted them on makeshift gun carriages. Now von Letov had heavy artillery that he had stolen off of a warship. The Königsberg was dead, But her guns were hungry, and they would feed. By 1916, the British had had enough. This random German colonel and his little army were proving too clever by half. The empire was finally sending thousands of troops to deal with German East Africa. But this was exactly what von Letov wanted. They said, Like, uh, colonel, we're about to be outnumbered by ten to one. And von Letov would just say, Good. He might have said, I'm not trapped in Africa with you, you're trapped in Africa with me. By 1916, the Allies were ready to launch a major offensive against German East Africa, mainly because a new player had entered the arena. These were the Boers, the white South Africans of Dutch descent who had volunteered to fight for the Empire. The South Africans had wrapped up the conquest of German Southwest Africa, Namibia, in late 1915, and that meant they were available for redeployment to deal with the Kaiser's lions. <laughs> The boys versus the lions. Animal motifs, get it? By early 1916, the South African Expeditionary Forces were assembling in British East Africa, preparing to strike against von Letov's positions around Mount Kilimanjaro. I gotta say, German East Africa, British East Africa, Southwest Africa, South Africa, West Africa, I'm just like, just ask the people what the area's called. Like, hey, you, what's this area called? Don't just call it East Africa, that's boring as hell. Anyway... South Africa's involvement in World War I was heavily influenced by politics. Lots of South Africans still held a grudge against Britain for the Boer War. But Boer politicians sought to advance South Africa's status within the empire by contributing to the war effort. These guys included the new Allied commander in East Africa, Jan Christian Smuts. Smuts was an unusual figure, a career lawyer turned Boer guerrilla fighter against the British, turned pro-British Empire politician. Smuts came striding into East Africa with an attitude of I have come to save the day, which didn't go over very well with his British subordinates. South African reinforcements were necessary because by the end of 1915, three quarters of the original Indian Expeditionary Forces were either dead or too sick to fight. The British were learning that troops unprepared for African conditions just melted away. Von Litov's Iskaris had done their share of the killing, but as the South Africans would learn, disease was the real killer. The 20,000 South African troops were cocky, fresh off of a very, honestly, very easy victory in Namibia, certain that they would make short work of the so-called kefirs. Kefir is a slang South African term for a black person, usually an insult, and the South African troops referred to the Askaris as the Kefers. They wouldn't do that for long. The South Africans also dissed the Indian soldiers, calling them coolies and treating them like servants. Yeah, in a 20th century full of racism, South Africa was notably racist. This is the country that instituted apartheid, after all. But the South Africans stopped laughing after their first fight with the Askaris. This was on February 12, 1916, at the Battle of Salaita Hill. The Allies had more than 6,000 men, against a German force number in less than 1,000, But surprise, surprise, the Askaris thrashed the South Africans so badly that the Indian troops had to come bail them out. The 130th Baluchis recaptured the positions the South Africans had lost. The Indian troops returned one of the South Africans' abandoned machine guns with a note. With the compliments of the 130th Baluchis, may we request that you no longer refer to our people as coolies." But the South Africans were not the only new characters of 1916. The Belgian army, 95% of them African Askaris from the Congo, would play a major part in the campaign for the first time. This was thanks to a bonkers little battle that had taken place in the interior of Africa at Lake Tanganyika. Lake Tanganyika, the world's second-largest freshwater lake at 400 miles long, straddled the border between German East Africa and the Belgian Congo. Very early on in the First World War, the Germans used a trio of armed steamboats to gain supremacy on the lake. The Graf von Goetzen was the biggest and most dangerous of these boats, and by late 1915, she even carried one of the Königsberg salvage naval guns. As long as the Germans held Lake Tanganyika, a Belgian advance from the west was impossible. A English big-game hunter named John Lee came up with a harebrained scheme to recapture Lake Tanganyika. He acquired two 40-foot-long speedboats originally built for the Greek navy, and outfitted them with light cannons and Maxim machine guns. The plan was to carry these very sketchy warships over land hundreds of miles through jungle and mountains plop them in the lake, and send them to go fight three much larger German ships. And to most people, this plan was idiotic. Yep, let's just strap a machine gun on your fishing boat that you just drag through the jungle and go boxing with a purpose-built warship. Great idea. The operation's leader was even crazier. Royal Navy Lieutenant Commander Jeffrey Spicer Simpson was eccentric, which is old-timey for certifiably insane. Spicer Simpson was a pathological liar who smoked cigarettes with his own name monogrammed on them and liked to bathe in public. He was also covered head to toe in tattoos, which is not unusual today, but was very unusual in 1916. And he had also bungled pretty much every job the Navy had ever given him. The Navy gave Spicer Simpson the Lake Tanganyika expedition because they had no idea what else to do with him. Spicer Simpson christened the two speedboats Mimi and Tutu. Spicer Simpson wanted to call them Cat and Dog, but the Admiralty said no, so he was like, oh look, it's the Fun Police, so he named them Mimi and Tutu, which mean Meow and Bow Wow in French. I guess Gunboaty face was taken. The Admiralty was like, uh, sure, whatever. Spicer Simpson and his oddball crew began their 10,000-mile journey to Lake Tanganyika in June 1915. The trip was a bizarre, epic, freaking weird adventure. Transport ships carried the disassembled Mimi and Tutu from London to Cape Town, South Africa, then the railroad carried them north to Elizabethville in the Belgian Congo. But from there, Mimi and Tutu had to be dragged 150 miles overland through unexplored jungle and across the Matumba Mountains. This required hundreds of African laborers with ropes and a pair of steam-powered tractor engines purposely dragged up here to pull these little boats. Mimi and Tutu crawled through Africa at the pace of four miles a day, in like working sunup to sundown in these miserable jungle conditions to pull these stupid boats across the mountains. Finally, Mimi and Tutu reached the Lualaba River, where they floated another hundred miles, getting beached like every single foot of the way, having to be unstuck all the time. At one point, I believe Mimi got beached like 14 times in a single day. They floated down the river to another railhead, which finally took them to Lake Tanganyika. By now, the crews were in dire shape, swarming with giant ticks and giant mosquitoes, dodging literal crocodiles, watching their commander do push-ups and ride around on his bicycle singing songs. They had taken to calling themselves Simpsons Circus, or the Tanganyika Tits. But by December 1915, after seven months, (laughs) Mimi and Tutu arrived at Lake Tanganyika. Now the fun began. Because despite all of that, and despite how stupid this whole thing was in concept and how stupid its execution had been, the plan worked. The two tiny speedboats took the Germans completely by surprise. Spicer Simpson captured the German steamer Kingani on December 26, 1915, and added it to his fleet, promptly naming it the, uh, Fifi. And then they all these all three of these ships sank the other German steamer, Hedwig von Wismann, on February 9, 1916. The biggest German warship, the Graf von Götzen, saw these two little psycho boats whizzing around the lake sinking vessels several times their own size, and refused to risk a battle, eventually being abandoned by its crew. Spicer Simpson decided that now he was an admiral, so he designed his own uniform, including a a khaki skirt that his wife had sewn for him. No, it wasn't a kilt, he was very adamant that it was a skirt. He liked the skirt, so he said, because if he got dysentery, it would make pooping himself easier. Spicer Simpson's behavior was so kooky, his appearance so bizarre, his victory so improbable, that some of the Baholoholo locals assumed he was a minor god. They built literal shrines to him, complete with skirt and tattoos. Weird as all this was, you had to hand it to them. Spicer Simpson and his circus had captured Lake Tanganyika for the Allies, in one of the strangest operations of the First World War. Also, Spicer Simpson pissed off the Belgians later on and got his inked up butt fired, but not before getting a bunch of medals for the expedition. He's still very controversial to this day, but that's a whole thing. Incidentally, that big warship, the Graf von Goetzen, well, it was recovered in 1924 by the British and refloated and to this day still ferries people across Lake Tanganyika as the newly rechristened as the Liemba, It's still the only Imperial German Navy warship that still floats in any waters to this day. Weird, right? Anyway, back to the main story. With his army assembled and Lake Tanganyika secure, General Smuts was finally ready to begin his grand offensive in March 1916. His plan involved almost 50,000 Allied troops advancing into German East Africa from three directions. To the Northeast... Smuts's main force of 30,000 would advance from British East Africa against von Lettow's main force around Mount Kilimanjaro. To the northwest, north of Lake Tanganyika, the Belgians would advance from the Congo with 12,000 Belgian askaris. To the southwest, south of Lake Tanganyika, a British column would advance from Rhodesia. Three simultaneous attacks to overwhelm German East Africa. Guys, the diversity of these forces was astonishing. Englishmen and Belgians and South Africans, Pashtuns and Punjabis and Sikhs, Congolese and Kenyans and Rhodesians, Christian and Muslim and Hindu and African indigenous faiths, black and brown and white, and various shades in between. One British officer said, Since Alexander of Macedon descended upon the plains of India, there can never have been so strange and heterogeneous an army as this. Paul von Letov Vorbeck had 16,000 Germans and Askaris, the largest force he would ever command, spread out over hundreds of miles. And unlike the Allies, he had no resupply, no reinforcements, no help coming from outside. But keep in mind, this was exactly what von Letov wanted. Every soldier fighting him was one less soldier on the Western Front. I'm outnumbered over 3 to 1? Good. That means my plan is working. Jan Smuts's strategy was a radical departure from previous British operations. He believed that his background as a guerrilla in the Boer War gave him a unique insight into mobile warfare. Smuts planned to hold the Germans in place with frontal attacks while sending wide-flanking maneuvers to cut their line of retreat. He had assembled a fast-moving strike force, the South African Mounted Brigade under General Jacob van de Venter, to function as his striking arm. That was Smuts's strategy, hold von Letov in place while van de Venter delivered the killing blow from behind. Smuts's plan was good in concept, it looked good on paper, but it failed to take two major factors into account. The first was the Iron Hand of Logistics. In order to make these rapid movements, his troops would have to travel very far, very fast, in an African wilderness with no improved roads, no infrastructure, and weather that was very unforgiving if you weren't prepared for it. Smuts' operations would run into major supply problems throughout the campaigns in 1916. This didn't just come with a massive cost in the health and lives of his soldiers, it also slowed his forces down. And the second problem was that Paul von Lettov Vorbeck had no intention of letting himself be surrounded. In fact, drawing his enemy deeper into Africa was part of his plan. Von Letov would let Africa do the fighting for him. I'm not trapped in Africa with you. You're trapped in Africa with me. Smuts began phase one of his grand offensive on March 5, 1916. This was a two-pronged attack to leverage the Germans off of Mount Kilimanjaro. And it went pretty well. By March 13th, Smuts had forced von Leto away from the border with British East Africa and captured the town of Moshi, his major objective. Nice and tidy campaign, except for a couple of very nasty battles where the Askaris messed his units up pretty badly. The only problem was that von Letov's entire force had withdrawn to the south, destroying everything behind them, evading the trap. Smuts's pincer movement had landed on air. And that pretty much set the pattern for the next several months, for this duel between Smuts and von Leto Vorbeck. Smuts always launched these big crazy flanking maneuvers, he was like, I have you now, and von Letov always just stepped back out of the net. And the Germans destroyed everything behind them whenever they evacuated the region. What they couldn't carry with them, they just burned or blew up, including every ra- railroad bridge they could. They ripped down every telegraph wire, leaving nothing that the Allies could use. Von Letov wasn't just retreating. He struck back whenever he got the chance, whenever the odds were in his favor. A battalion of Ascaris would hold up one of Smuts's columns, chewing them up with machine guns, and then the next morning they had vanished. A well-deployed Königsberg gun would fire a few shells into a supply train before rolling down the road to a new position. Booby traps and IEDs exploded along the railways. There were a dozen small battles, some commanded by von Lethov in person, some by his able subordinates. Names like Kahe, Matamosa, Kilongo, Malali. They all ended the same way, with the Germans inflicting casualties giving the Allies a bloody nose, then slipping back to fight another day. Throughout the campaign, the Askaris proved over and over again that they were more than a match for their South African opponents. Higher discipline, higher morale, greater skill in battle, and bushcraft. Their marching song, Haya Safari," echoed off the savannas and rocky hills of German East Africa. It went like this. Tuna quenda, tuna shenda, tuna buono Askari won in desha, Askari won in desha, tunenquenda tunashenda. Translated as, We're marching, we're winning, we're following the big boss colonel. The Askari are coming, the Askari are coming, we're marching, we're winning. But the Germans themselves weren't Smuts's greatest problem. By drawing his enemy deeper into Africa, von Letov was letting Africa do the damage. The South Africans were melting away from disease and deprivation as their supply lines strained to keep up. Swarms of insects in the searing tropical sun ravaged the allied columns. Worst of all were the twin killers, cholera and malaria, each of which felled far more men than Ascari bullets. And the most dangerous animal in Africa wasn't human, or even a lion. It was the tsetse fly. The tsetse fly spreads trypanosomiasis, this, is, this disease, trypanosomiasis, is very dangerous to humans who call it sleeping sickness, but it is catastrophically lethal to livestock, especially horses. All of Van Deventer's cavalry horses, and the enormous number of pack animals that Smuts had brought to pull his wagons, were dropping by the score. Plus, Von Letov knew where all the tsetse fly belts were, he'd done surveys of this before the war. And his lines of retreat ran through those areas on purpose to kill as many british animals as possible like i said genius destructive genius but genius one distraught british army veteran committed suicide after losing so many of his animals then in late march the rainy season came smuts himself recalled his reaction i had read about it and i had heard more but the reality surpassed the worst I had read or heard. For weeks the rain came down ceaselessly, pitiless, sometimes three inches and twenty-four hours, until all the hollows became rivers, all the low-lying valleys became lakes, the bridges disappeared, and all roads dissolved in mud. All communications came to an end, and even Moses himself in the desert had not such a commissariat situation as faced me. Jakob van de Venter's cavalry brigade had set out to try and cut the central railway, but his line of march took them right through a tsetse fly belt and into the worst of the rain. Two weeks later, three quarters of van Deventer's Venter's horses were dead, his men were starving, and he was stuck in the mud at the town of Kondowa Irangi. Van Deventer's Venter's path was marked by the rotting bodies of his mounts. Von Letov zeroed in on van Deventer's Venter's stranded brigade. He launched a fierce attack at Kondoa Irangi on the night of May 9, 1916. Riflemen from both sides stalked each other in the torrential downpour, Black African versus White African, as a Königsberg gun added its boom to the mix. Von Letov stalked the night, chain-smoking, trying to keep track of the bloody, muddy chaos. But eventually the Germans had to call it and back off. They weren't able to crack the South Africans. Kondoa irangi was a missed opportunity for Von Leto to destroy the South African cavalry. He held his positions around the town for a month, pounding the South Africans with his Königsberg guns. But even if Von Letov couldn't destroy the Allied army, Africa could. The collapse of Smuts's logistics led to an increasing reliance on the oldest form of transport, human beings. And this is the story you won't get from older books on this campaign. Due to Africa's poor infrastructure, the fact that horses were dying like flies, and the enormous distances, logistics were such a a nightmare, every army in this campaign relied on human porters for its supply needs, and human porters were only going to come from one place, and this resulted in a catastrophe. Throughout the war in Africa, the Allies and the Germans conscripted able-bodied men from their colonies to fuel their logistics efforts. The supply chains of the European powers in Africa literally ran on human fuel, and this fuel got burned up. Carriers died at apocalyptic rates throughout the war, especially from 1916 on. Throughout the First World War, Great Britain conscripted no fewer than 1 million carriers from Africa, of whom at least 95,000 died. Some units, I've read their statistics, of at least 1 in 5 carriers died for some units. That is a worse death rate than the Western Front. The British dragged off so many men from parts of Kenya that it was an out and out demographic disaster in those regions. And to top it off, this was virtually slavery. The British at least pretended to pay their carriers. They paid them pennies, but at least they gave them something. I mean, it was, didn't do you much good if you were face down in the mud around Kondowe or rangi The Germans and the Belgians didn't pay their carriers at all. There's a reason none of the memoirs really talk about this, and there's a reason no one really tried to keep too many records. The optics weren't good. It was slavery, pure and simple. One British officer said that if anyone ever found out the truth about the carrier deaths in Africa, it would have been an international scandal. For the Allies to win, they had to move fast, but the faster they moved, the more the carriers suffered, the more they were pushed forward day and night in near-starvation conditions. To put this more viscerally, you are just a Kenyan or Tanzanian or Congolese villager with a wife and two kids going about your day when some white dudes show up and drag you hundreds of miles away from your home to carry 60 pounds on your head barefoot through miserable terrain for an army that treats you like an animal. You're starving, no one cares. You get sick, no one cares. You die, they march over your body. Your wife and children never know what happened to you. After all, you're not just a civilian, you're not just black. You're African, human fuel in the engine of great war logistics. The Belgians launched their offensive in April 1916, overrunning modern-day Rwanda and Burundi. Old General Vala waged a perilous fighting retreat, towards and beyond the col- colonial capital of Tabora. The German Ascaris were terrified of the Belgian Ascaris, who came from tribes that were rumored to be cannibalistic. The Belgian Ascaris turned out to be some of the toughest troops on either side. They captured Tabora on September 19th, just after Governor Schnee and General Valla had evacuated the town. Schnee's wife Ada remained behind in the governor's house, with Belgian General Tambor being too polite to remove her or the other German women that had been left behind. In the southwest, on the Rhodesian front, Brigadier General Edward Northey led his 2,600 African soldiers, white and black, on a lightning march over the mountains near Lake Nyasa. Northey was probably the best British commander of the whole campaign. I don't have time to talk about his campaigns too much, but he maneuvered the Germans out of their strongholds along the border with Rhodesia and moved towards the town of Iringa. Now Paul von Lettow-Vorbeck had thousands of allied soldiers converging on his small army. His strategy had worked, and now he was reaping the consequences. German East Africa was collapsing. It was time to fall back. The Schutztruppe retreated behind the Refugee River, leaving the infrastructure of German East Africa to the enemy. The Allies captured Tanga on July 7th, 18 months after their humiliating defeat there, and they captured Dar es Salaam on September 4th. The Königsberg guns retreated, falling back across the river, still sending shell after shell into their pursuers, which the South African troops called the Daily Hate. By late October 1916, the Schutztruppe had completed their retreat into the highlands of southern Germany, East Africa. Jan Smuts declared victory. On paper, he had accomplished his objectives, British East Africa was secured, German East Africa's major towns and railroads had been conquered, von Letov's depleted army was driven into the jungle. But von Letov's guerrilla campaign, his scorched-earth tactics, destroyed everything behind them. The railways and other facilities were virtually ruined, and Smuts's army was in ruins as well. Most of his units had suffered appalling casualties, mostly from disease. The 9th South African Infantry, which had seen very little combat, began the campaign with 1,135 men. Within six months, 116 were fit for duty, a 90% casualty rate. 12,000 South African troops, 60% of the original force, were sent back to Cape Town to recover from wasting diseases. The arrival of these emaciated hollow figures caused a public outcry and political scandal in South Africa. And worst of all, Smuts had failed to destroy the Schutztruppe. Paul von Leto Vorbeck still had 9,000 men under arms. He had cost the enemy many times more men than he had in his entire army. But in the process, he had laid waste to the colony he was supposed to defend. German East Africa descended into poverty. The destruction of war, the lack of food, and the conscription of able-bodied men caused a famine that eventually killed 300,000 people. Thousands of human and animal carcasses littered the landscape, and disease stalked the land. More and more African carriers, human fuel for the supply train, died in the dust of the savannah. War is a hungry beast, and it was eating well in German East Africa. 1916 in Europe had seen the bloodbaths of Verdun, the Somme, Jutland, and the Brusilov Offensive. 1916 in East Africa was no less horrible. Here, As on the Western Front, it truly was the war to end all wars. African theater of World War I descended into a stalemate in 1917. Paul von Leto Vorbeck and the Schutztruppe held out in the rugged southeast corner of German East Africa. The Allies didn't have the strength for a major offensive due to their depleted forces and broken logistics. Early in the year, the legendary hunter Frederick Sellis had been killed by an Askari sniper during a combat patrol. It seemed like all the adventure was fading out of the campaign. It dragged on with no end in sight. Late in 1916, Smuts sent messages to von Letov demanding his surrender. Like, hey, I've taken the colony, I've defeated your army, surrender. Von Letov refused. He's like, nah, bro, I'm not trapped here with you, you're trapped here with me. But in early 1917, Smuts was recalled to London to serve on the Imperial War Council. He declared victory before he left, pointing out that he had conquered most of the colony, conveniently forgetting that he had sacrificed thousands of men and von Letov was still at large. And events in early 1917 demonstrated that the East African War was not over. Captain Max Wintgens, one of von Letov's officers, took his detachment of Schutztruppe on an unauthorized raid back into the northern, supposedly conquered part of German East Africa. The raid was an eight-month game of cat and mouse, 500 Germans and Askaris marched hundreds of miles, coming close to the border with British East Africa, before finally being forced to surrender. This raid didn't just give the Allies months of headaches and destroyed miles of railroad track, it proved that the Schutztruppe was still alive and kicking. Throughout 1917, the Allied forces transformed. Most of the South Africans were gone, their ranks having melted away in 1916. Most of the Indians had been redeployed to the Middle East, and the forces replacing them were African. The Nigerian Brigade, the King's African Rifles, the Gold Coast Regiment, including al Haji Grunshi, who was now a Sergeant Major. Even the all-black West Indian Regiment from the Caribbean. That doesn't make a lot of sense. The British are like, hey, you guys are black. You should go where all the other black people are. I mean, that's really the logic here. I don't understand either. The British, who had, the British, remember, had claimed that using black soldiers in a white man's war would be a disaster, and now their army in Africa was about 90% black. But the situation was growing dire for von Letov and his Askaris. They were subsisting in the jungle, living off local agriculture, holding out with no end in sight. They were running very low on supplies, especially ammunition and quinine. Even the news that von Letov had been promoted to major general couldn't improve his mood. Do note that up until late 1917, von Letov had still been a lieutenant colonel, basically middle management. The Askaris were losing some of their vaunted morale. Some of them deserted, others remained determined to see this thing through. Many of the Askaris had their families with them. The Schutztruppe still followed the old camp follower pattern, so every field company had a little train of African women and children following its marches. And that hardcore of Askaris who had served since before the war still followed Von Letov with fierce loyalty. They had given him a new nickname. He was still the Buana Obersti, but now he was also the Buana Alifania Sanda, the Shroudmaker. General Jacob van Deventer, the big burly cavalry general who had replaced Smuts, was under pressure to finish this campaign. The Allies are like, get finish it up down there. I mean, what's taking so long? Smuts said he won. What's the issue? So van Deventer planned to trap von Letov against the border with Portuguese East Africa and force him into a decisive battle. Van Deventer got his wish on October 15th at Mahiwa, a battle that would be nicknamed the African Gettysburg. In this corner, 5,000 British troops, including King's African Rifles, the Nigerian Brigade, the Frontiersman Battalion, and a few Indian regiments. In this corner, Paul von Lettow Vorbeck and 1,500 Askaris. Three to one odds for the British. Place your bets. Von Letov knew that General J.S. Bevis, Van Deventer's subordinate, had a reputation for reckless, stupid attacks. So he laid a trap, a carefully prepared meat grinder of a defensive position. The Askaris turned the dry, dusty scrubland of the plateau into a miniature western front. Barbed wire, machine gun nests, cleared fields of fire, deep trenches, dugouts, their artillery included the last functioning gun, that they had taken off the Königsberg. Of all the battles of the East Africa campaign, the Battle of Mahiwa, October 15th through 18th, 1917, was the one that looked most like the stereotypical First World War. Barbed wire and trenches, machine guns and grenades, but it was fought in the African bush, almost entirely by Africans. General Bevis did exactly what von Letov expected, and hammered his head into the German defenses time and again. The Nigerian Brigade took horrific casualties in its brave but futile assaults. The Frontiersman Battalion suffered 75% casualties beating back a German counterattack, the final destruction of this colorful unit. The humid air was choked with the tearing Maxim guns, the cries of the wounded, and the rumbles of artillery. Nigerians performed traditional war dances before charging trenches with the bayonet. Ascari snipers picked off officers. Artillery barrages sent antelope dance dashing for safety. Von Letov stalked the trenches in full-dress uniform, smoking like a freight train, risking danger to encourage his men. The shroud maker in his full bloom. One British officer remembered a Nigerian trench that had been hit with three direct shells from the Königsberg gun. The trees above this trench were dripping blood for two days afterwards from limbs and trunks of men that had been blown up and been wedged between the branches. The Great War, in all its horror and all its trauma, had truly come to East Africa. When Von Letov fell back, he had inflicted 2,700 casualties on the British, over 50% losses, a stunning victory, the Shroudmaker. But Von Letov had expended 850,000 rounds of ammunition, two-thirds of his stockpile, and lost 500 men himself that he could not replace. Mahiwa was his bloodiest battle, his greatest victory since Tanga, But it was also the last battle the Schutztruppe could fight. It didn't have the resources for another. It seemed like the end of the line for the Germans in East Africa. They couldn't fight another battle, and the Allied forces were closing in from every direction. But Paul von Lethal Vorbeck was not ready to quit. He decided on a daring radical move that defied all accepted military logic. Paul von Lettow Vorbeck ordered the Schutzstruppe to strip down to the bone. They would leave behind their wounded, their prisoners, all the artillery, including the last Königsberg gun, anything they couldn't carry. What remained was a force of 200 Germans and 2,000 Askaris, but these were the hardcore, the, the veterans of several years. And the new companies were racially integrated, in some cases with white soldiers taking orders from African sergeants, a situation that was absolutely unheard of in any other army of the time. And Von Letov marched south towards the Ravuma River, the border with Portuguese East Africa. He was leaving German East Africa behind entirely. Von Letov's plan was simple, to break into neighboring Af- Allied territory and live off the land. Constantly moving, a thin gray column of human locusts staying one step ahead of the enemy. He was abandoning conventional warfare for guerrilla warfare, still trying to tie down as many allied troops as possible. Basically saying, I'm I'm cutting loose, I'm cutting the tether, come get me, catch me if you can. Von Letov tried to leave the Askaris camp followers behind, but they weren't having it. When a Schutztrupa sergeant tried to escort the women and children to British lines, the African women beat him up and forced him to bring them back. Like, they, w- they refused to leave. Von Letov was like, fine, fine, you guys can come, but you're carrying some of these machine gun bullets. So the Askaris and the women and the children marched south to the Ravuma. One Schutztrupa soldier too sick to go on and left behind for the British to capture, remembered watching the army pass him by. The campfires gleamed on fantastic shapes, black and white, side by side, carrying rifles over their shoulders, butt pointing backwards. Some of the shapes were barefooted, some naked torsos had cartridge belts slung across them like bandoliers, some wore old felt hats or uniform caps, and some were bareheaded. Rags of every kind of uniform sprang into sight in the firelight, and were gone into the blackness again. This was what was left of the East Africa Army. On its way to the Ravuma. Von Letov didn't know it, but the German High Command had sent one last desperate mission to resupply the Schutztruppe, just not by sea, by air. This was an operation called the China Show, including one of the largest airships ever built in history, the massive Zeppelin L-59. It carried hordes of ammunition, spare parts, and medical supplies, intended for a one-way trip from Bulgaria all the way across Africa to rendezvous with von Lethoff's forces. L-59 was on its way by November 1917, crossing the Mediterranean and the Sahara and even reaching the headwaters of the Nile. It was already two-thirds of the way to German East Africa when a radio message came through informing them that the operation was cancelled. Von Letov had abandoned the Makande Plateau, the only safe landing site for L-59, and they were ordered to turn back. There is a whole conspiracy theory that this was actually a British trick, like they sent a message, a fake message to try to convince the Zeppelin to turn back, but the evidence just doesn't bear this out. You'll still see this in very recent books that have been written about this campaign that, oh, the British tricked the German Zeppelin into turning back, but that's not true. The reality was that the Zeppelin would have arrived too late anyway. Von Letov was already marching south away from the intended landing site, and he had no way to directly communicate with the Zeppelin to tell them that. So they weren't going to find him and get the supplies to him either way. But the epic flight of L-59 is still impressive, and to this day remains the longest non-stop military airship flight in history. The Schutztruppe crossed the Ravuma River into Portuguese East Africa on November 25th, 1917. For the last year of the Great War, this would be their lives. A constantly roving guerrilla force, never seen in one place too long, living off the land in allied territory. Portuguese East Africa is modern Mozambique. Now, Portugal was technically an allied power. They had entered the war in 1916. But, guys, Portugal's military performance in the First World War was, like, bottom tier. Only the Romanians were worse, and if you know anything about the Romanians in World War I, that's pretty bad. One of the first things von Letov did was attack the Portuguese outpost at Negomano. This attack was almost insultingly easy. The Askaris had nothing but contempt for the Portuguese white soldiers or the Portuguese Ascaris, referring to them as shinzi ulaya." or trashy soldiers, and the supplies they captured from the Portuguese at Negomano would feed and arm the Schutztruppe for months to come. Month after month, through Christmas 1917 and into 1918, von Letov and his tiny army bounced around northern Mozambique, a fast-moving little strike force that took what it needed from the country and the enemy van de venter sent british forces to chase them down like all these columns just moving through the wilderness trying to track down and bring von letov to battle but the Schutztruppe could always move faster because they weren't bound to supply lines it was another game of cat and mouse with multiple british detachments thrashing through the wilderness like get back here and let us fight you get back here and von letov's like come get me come get me there were small battles here and there, as von Letov slipped out of one trap after another, but they never pinned him down. The Portuguese were completely incapable of stopping the Germans, and von Letov's men captured more supplies than they could carry. By now, almost all their German weapons were long gone, replaced with Portuguese or British rifles and machine guns. The Allies, just as at Tanga, turned out to be the most reliable supplier for the Schutztruppe. Von Letov described it as the British chasing him while he chased the Portuguese. He literally crossed and recrossed his own line of march several times, leading the British around like they were cats and he was a piece of yarn. But the campaign was wearing the Schutztruppe down bit by bit. Von Letov himself survived no less than four bouts with malaria. The war seemed never-ending. Month after month of fighting and marching, sometimes near-starving, over mountains and through swamps and jungles until feet, their feet were masses of blisters. Disease claimed one man after another, and by september nineteen eighteen the Ascari suffered from a strange new illness that felled men by the score. The Spanish flu pandemic had arrived in East Africa, and the Schutztropa spread it across the country like a small little army of typhoid marys and they left a trail of destruction behind them, the inevitable consequence of any army living off the land, the marks of total war. One German officer remembered, Behind us we leave destroyed wells, ransacked magazines, and for the immediate future, starvation. We are no longer the agents of culture. Our track is marked by death, plundering, and evacuated villages, just like the progress of our own and enemy armies in the Thirty Years' War. At the end of September 1918, von Letov recrossed the Ravuma River back into German East Africa. The Schutztruppe had led the Allies in a wild goose chase for almost 10 months, and now they were back on their home turf. What's more, they had shaken off the enemy and could go anywhere they wanted. But instead of trying to reconquer German East Africa, von Letov turned west and marched towards British Northern Rhodesia, aka modern Zambia the allies wouldn't expect that and they didn't this was like the wildest thing they could imagine like von letov leaves his own home country the province he's supposed to defend bounces into enemy territory for 10 months comes home and immediately goes and invades another enemy territory general van de was increasingly desperate to find von letov and stop his crazy rampages can someone catch this guy They had chased him across half of Africa never once come close to bagging this German lunatic and his handful of African soldiers, and now von Letov was headed towards a British colony. He had to be stopped. But the last days were here, and everyone sort of knew it on some level. By October, the Askaris were deserting in increasing numbers, and von Letov let them go. He understood they were passing through the Askaris' home country. It would, after all, have been asking too much of human nature to expect that these men who had not seen their people for years should now march straight through their native district. On November 1st, 1918, Von Letov and the remnant of his army crossed the border into Rhodesia. But on November 12th, the Askaris captured a British courier who carried the news that they had been dreading. Only hours earlier, the guns had gone silent on the Western Front. The Great War was over, and Germany had lost. It was a bitter shock for Paul von Lettow Vorbeck and his officers. But when he told his Askaris that it was time to surrender, they were even angrier. They didn't understand. What do you mean surrender? We're on enemy territory. We're still winning. Von Lettow tried to explain that, no, 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 Germany has surrendered. The Kaiser has abdicated. Guys, it's over. And the Askaris basically rejected this. They were like, screw that. We didn't fight for Germany. We didn't follow the Kaiser. We followed you. We have our own Kaiser, our African Kaiser. But when he ordered them to do to lay down their arms, they obeyed their African Kaiser's final order. On November 25, 1918, one year to the day after he had crossed the Ravuma, Paul von Lettow Vorbeck surrendered his forces to General van de Venter and his mostly African units. Von Lethoff still had 155 Germans and 1,156 Askaris under arms, and the weapons they laid down were almost all Portuguese or British. And what blows my mind are these last few Askaris that were still going. What motivated these guys? What did they make of all this? How had they endured this long, surviving all the trials of this campaign, for a European war that really had nothing to do with them? I mean... The Germans would make much of the loyalty of the Askaris to Germany, but they weren't fighting for Germany. I'm really curious to, I would love to talk to one of these guys and figure out what was going through his mind in late 1918. Although I'll tell you guys right now, put those thousand or so Ascaris against any soldiers in history, and I know who my money is on. The prisoners were shipped back to German East Africa, where the Ascaris would be repatriated and the Germans would be released back to Europe. Von Letov assembled his African lions, spoke to them, saluted them with tears in his eyes, and walked away. But then one of the Askaris grabbed his sleeve. I have been asked to say this to you, Bwana General. Where do you go now? Where you go, we will go with you. And if this is not the time, then wait until my son grows up to be a warrior, and he will take my place and go with you. We will go with the Bwana General, will we not? The rest of the Askaris roared their agreement. von Letov held them back with a gesture, turned his back, and boarded the train. The Kaiser's lions watched his train depart. Paul von Letov Vorbeck boarded a ship bound for Germany on January 17, 1919, five years to the day after he had arrived in East Africa. Africa's great war was over. In March 1919, Paul von Letthof Vorbeck led the German veterans of the Schutztruppe in a parade through the heart of Berlin. He had become something of a legend in Germany, but also a symbol of defiance. After all, von Letthof had ended the war on British territory, the only German commander to successfully invade the British Empire, the only German general who remained undefeated in the field. This turned von Letov and his Schutztruppe into a key component of the -the stab-in-the-back myth, The idea that that Germany had won the First World War militarily, but lost due to betrayal behind the lines. This was the insidious mythology that would lead to the Nazis. Von Letthoff himself did not really cover himself in glory immediately after the war. He was always a conservative, and he participated in the Kop putsch of 1920 and attempted military coup to restore the Kaiser. This resulted in his forced retirement from the army into private life. While he was a hero in his own day, in later years, von Letov's involvement, especially with the cop putsch, would result in his name being taken off most monuments and streets and facilities. And to that I say, fair. Whatever else you did for your country, leading armed insurrections against a democratic government, in my opinion, negates anything else you did you know, armed insurrections should be frowned upon. But to his enormous credit, Paul von Letov Vorbeck hated the Nazis and spoke out publicly against Adolf Hitler. Von Letov rejected Hitler's offer of a diplomatic position with open contempt and apparently some profanity. Several decades later, an American historian writing a book on this campaign asked the nephew of a Schutztruppe officer about von Letov's only face-to-face meeting with Hitler. The Americans said, I understand that von Letov told Hitler to go fuck himself. And the nephew corrected him. That's right, except that I don't think he put it that politely. Von Letov's anti-Nazi bona fides were so strong that Winston Churchill seriously considered himself for a leadership role in post-World War II Germany. But von Letov was disgusted by politics and also heartbroken by the death of both his sons in the Wehrmacht. He lived quietly in his Hamburg apartment until his death in 1964. The Treaty of Versailles split up Germany's colonies between the victorious allies. German East Africa was split up, with the bulk of it becoming British Tanganyika, the Belgians receiving Rwanda and Burundi. The loss of her overseas empire led to widespread bitterness back in Germany, with profound consequences for the future. But the consequences of the Great War in Africa were larger than a change in borders. Soldiers from Cameroon or the Congo or Gold Coast or Nigeria or Kenya or South Africa, they all had to cope with the aftermath of the war to end all wars. Everything looked different after the armistice. Their experience of modern war, of combat, suffering, and survival, their collective sacrifice and trauma, they brought it home with them. The war greatly affected African society. Many of the veterans came back to their villages and their tribes with new ideas, new concepts, new ways of seeing the world that brought them into conflict with their traditional leaders. There was this whole generational shift as people began to be affected by the modern world and Africans began to take, see a new future for Africa. Many of the First World War veterans became the leaders of African independence movements, or their children did or their brothers or relatives did. The ripple effects of the First World War in Africa were the beginning of the end for the European empires. The German Askaris were no less shaped by what they had witnessed. The Askari veterans played an outsized role in the new British colony of Tanganyika and later in the independent country of Tanzania. Some went into civilian jobs using their military skills to build up their communities. Some continued military careers in British service, including several former Askaris who fought in the King's African Rifles during World War II. One of the more tragic tales is that of Maju bin Adam Mohammed, who immigrated to Germany and used his veteran status to get employment. He even married a German woman. But his relationships with German women led to his arrest for violating Nazi Germany's racial laws, and he died in Sachsenhausen concentration camp in 1944. After von Letov's death in 1964, after two Askaris arrived in full imperial dress uniform to stand guard at his funeral, the West German government finally voted to give pensions to Schutztruppe veterans still living in Tanzania. But it was hard for the Askari veterans to prove they'd served without documentation, which there just wasn't a lot of. Finally, the German clerk had an idea. He asked each veteran to perform the manual of arms. Not one Askari failed the test. They performed the manual of arms perfectly. They got their pensions. So when we think of the British, German, French, or American soldier coming home in 1918 or 1919, think also of a Nigerian soldier, a veteran of Mahiwa, coming home to his wife and little girl, folding up his khaki uniform and laying it aside. One more veteran of the trenches, living proof that the First World War was not just a white man's war. The Great War was his war, too. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? Well, guys, that was the story of Paul von Leto Vorbeck, the Askaris, and the Great War in East Africa. And woo, what a story, right? These are some real unknown soldiers right here. Who thought of this as being part of World War I? Show of hands? Nope? Nope? Okay. So what can we make of the Great War in Africa? First off, I do have to say again, I skimmed some stuff and left other stuff out entirely. Like entire fronts and battles and miniature campaigns that I didn't have room to cover in this episode. This could easily have been a series, but there's only so much bandwidth for series here in the Unknown Soldiers podcast. Trust me, there is a lot to the Great War in Africa. I'll, in my source post on my website, I'll mention a couple books you can look up if you want to know more. So let's tackle the elephant in the room, Paul von Letov Vorbeck. What do you think of him? In my opinion, guys, von Letov was a brilliant commander, an outstanding military leader. I would go so far as to call him a genius. I use that word very sparingly uh, in military history. There's very few people I would actually call a genius and not just a really good general. I think of all the people we've gone into in this podcast, really gone into, I think I would only also call Yi Sun Shen from the Imjin War a genius. For the entirety of World War I, with never more than 16,000 troops, he waged a masterful campaign against a grand total of 300,000 Allied forces, and he ended the war in enemy territory. His skills in maneuver and tactics were unmatched, and he not only sustained his army despite zero support from the outside world, but he used the iron hand of logistics to ruin his enemies. Von Letov, directly and indirectly, inflicted many times more casualties on the enemy than he had soldiers in his entire army. And he had outstanding powers of personal leadership and strength of character, getting the Askaris to follow him to almost the ends of the earth. Like, for any junior or middle grade leader in the armed services, Von Letov's personal leadership skills are something to look to. But here's the thing, guys. In the end, von Letov's strategy didn't work. It was a good strategy. It made sense. But the troops that the Allies used in Africa were never going to the Western Front anyway. The British were never going to send the Nigerian Brigade to the Western Front. The resources that von Letov diverted were ultimately too small to matter. Germany still lost the war. And then we need to look at the consequences of this strategy, this leadership, this brilliance. What was the ultimate result By waging the war the way he did, by using the scorched earth total war strategy that he required for his overall goals, von Letov wreaked horrible destruction on Africa. By drawing the Allies into German East Africa, his strategy devastated the colony, leaving ruin in its wake. Von Letov sacrificed German East Africa to serve what he saw was the greater need of Germany, and this was ultimately the truth of imperialism. Beneath all the nice words and civilizing mantras, The colonies existed to benefit the colonizer. German East Africa was no exception. In the broader sense, the Great War in Africa claimed many lives. Over 2 million Africans served in the First World War as soldiers or laborers, and well over 200,000 of them died. The British recruited at least a million laborers for the East Africa campaign alone from a vast area stretching across the continent, and their death rates were appalling. Areas of Kenya and Uganda were virtually depopulated by British labor conscription. War is a hungry beast, and it feeds very, very well in tandem with the other three horsemen. World War I saw a total of 2 million African civilian deaths from all causes. All that partially includes the Spanish flu, so you have to take some of that into account. But this was destruction that would not be matched in Africa until the Nigerian Civil War of the 1960s. So the question is how much is Paul von Leto Vorbeck responsible for this destruction? Some people blame him for all the deaths. You'll find a lot of articles and perspectives very critical of his conduct of the campaign. And I agree on one level. But I also think that he was no more responsible than any commander in history. For instance, like, you can't really blame him for what the British did in Africa. You can't blame him for what the Belgians or Portuguese did. Von Leto didn't start the war, and he was far from the most brutal general of the war. Most of the deaths set against his name were indirect casualties, unintended consequences of his war, even if he knew he risked those consequences by fighting the war. And if we judge everyone by their unintended consequences, guys, we will be here all day. We could say, well, he should have surrendered. He shouldn't have fought this war knowing how much death it would bring. But that applies to every leader in history. We could say, oh, the Africans didn't ask for this war. But you know, most of the Europeans didn't either. The, the Europeans and the Africans were in the same boat and being called up in a war that was not of their making, but they ended up having to fight. As Sherman said, war is cruelty and you cannot refine it. Paul von Leto Vorbeck's military genius was inherently destructive, as is all military genius. His impressive achievements and the damage they caused are two sides of the same coin, I'll leave the moral judgments up to you in the end. I myself have mixed feelings on the whole thing. Let me know what you think. But we should also ask, also ask the Askaris. After all, they're really the heart of the story. What do you think they would say? In 1953, the 82-year-old Paul von lettow Vorbeck made his first and only visit to Africa after the Great War. He was greeted by several hundred Askari veterans who carried the old man to his hotel on their shoulders, marching with the Buono Bersti one last time, singing their marching song, Haya Safari. I think we know their opinion. Whatever we might think now, whatever our opinion might be now, they thought the war was worth waging down to the end. They followed their leader to hell and back. Whatever kept them going that last year of wandering through Africa, they thought it was worth it. Ibrahim Khalil, the last surviving German Askari that we know of, passed away in 1999. I was alive. Most of you were probably alive. I have to wonder what went through his head in those last days as he looked out over the savannah. Probably his family, his wife, his children, and their children. But I have no doubt that he sat some of those grandchildren on his knee and told them stories of the Great War Africa's war to end all wars, in his days marching with the Shroudmaker, when the slopes of Kilimanjaro rumbled with the battle cry of the Ascari. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope your picture of the First World War is much different than it was. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it, but I do not condone my worship as a minor deity, no matter how much I deserve it. If you don't like it, tell your enemies, unless they're cannibals, I don't want them near me. If you want to read all the stuff I've written about World War One, and I've written a lot, it's all on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or just drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. Finally, guys, thanks again. This is one of my favorite episodes to write and record. I truly do hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to check back in next week for one of our side stories, the Saga of the Königsberg. And the week after that, for another full-length episode. This time, we're going way, way back in time. We're going back to ancient times again. I love ancient times. Everybody's terrible. All right, so I'll see you next week, only here on Unknown Soldiers.